a rich man languishes in hell, suffering the torments of a life lived for self, a luxurious life in which he thought he could ignore God, he finds himself separated from God. I beg you, Father Abraham, he pleads, send the poor beggar Lazarus back from the dead to visit my five brothers. They know Lazarus. If Lazarus comes back from the dead, if he warns them, they will repent. They'll leave their sin and they'll escape this misery. But Abraham responds, they have the written Word of God to call them to repentance. No, Father Abraham, the rich man says, they'll never respond to that. But if they see someone rise from the dead, that will get their attention. Then they will certainly repent and be saved. But Abraham wisely says, consider it, if they do not heed the message of God's written Word and repent of their sins in response, they will never respond to a man who rises from the dead. One of the most essential uniquenesses of the Judeo-Christian faith is the conviction that God is known through the structures of human language. God reveals Himself and His will through written and spoken words. World religions seek to relate to the divine realm by other means, by mystical means, religious experience. And there's nothing wrong with religious experience as it stands, but this will be the primary way of drawing close to the divine. So it might be humming mantra for hours on end, or imagining holy scenes as one sits alone in the dark. Sitting in strange positions. Taking pilgrimages to sacred places. It's the place that draws me close to God. Observing holy days. It's the time that draws me close to God. Performing religious rituals. It's what I do that draws me close to God. Or viewing religious symbols and images. It's what I see that draws me close to God. But it is by hearing, by receiving, and believing God's Word that we are regenerated. It is by God's Word that the church is redeemed and formed. And so it is that Abraham says to the rich man, it is by heeding, by hearing, by receiving this Word of God that we are saved. Not by a vision. Not by some experience religiously. In fact, as Peter Adam rightly claims in his book, Hearing God's Words, being the people of God means living and dying in the sure hope that God's words are true. Do you believe that? As we gather here this day, being the people of God means living and dying in the sure hope that God's words are true. Yes, there are many voices that falsely claim to speak for God. Many. But this does not negate the fact that God rejoices to declare His life-transforming truth through witnesses who faithfully speak and communicate for Him. 
receiving such words, receiving such communication is what saves us. It also humbles us. Think of it. As John Calvin noted, God's saving grace is received when, I quote, a puny man risen from the dust speaks in God's name. What a great wonder. Puny people rising from the dust do speak God's life-giving words. And people receive them with joy, conviction, and transforming effect. In fact, I would argue that there is nothing any more decisive about you than your reception of God's Word as God's Word. His infallible His all-authoritative, life-transforming Word. Is this how you receive His Word? This is what is all important. We witness this reality in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church. If you'll make your way there again this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we've come to verse 13 in our study of this book. Let's remember again in chapter 1, Paul gives thanks for specific evidences that the Thessalonian believers formed a spiritually healthy church. There was vibrancy there. God had genuinely transformed them. And there were evidences of His operative grace in their midst. Then we come to chapter 2 in the first 12 verses where the emphasis falls on the messengers who brought the life-transforming Word of God to the Thessalonian believers. Paul defends the integrity of his ministry and that of the team of evangelists. The focus again being on those who bring the Word of God. He noted, and we noted this last week, the integrity of their message, the purity of their message, the purity of their motives, the purity of their methods, the purity of their godly life, their morals as they lived faithfully in line with the truth of God's Word. So the focus there is on those bringing the message. Now as we come to verse 13, Paul looks at the receiving end of the equation, at those who he is communicating to. What was decisive for Paul and his team was that they faithfully delivered the message with integrity. Verses 1-12. through What was decisive for the Thessalonians was their faithful reception of God's Word. We find this truth in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 2. Verse 13, their faithful reception of God's Word. We also thank God constantly for this, Paul writes, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So Paul is filled with thanksgiving to God as he contemplates the genuine conversion of the Thessalonian believers. This is what thrills him. He brings this prayer again to God and rejoices in this. The Thessalonian believers had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And they heard Paul proclaim this Gospel and they personally received that message and it led to a change of life for them. As evangelists, the apostles arrived in Thessalonica, but they came with a wholly different message than the traveling orators of the day as they spoke the message of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. 
God's judgment of sin, of the offer of forgiveness of sin, of a righteous standing with God as a gift that God gives. As they heard these themes from the Apostle Paul, the Thessalonians knew this was no normal traveling philosopher. This was a man who spoke the truth of God. This is not philosophical musings. We're not crafting feel-good message of self-worth and self-dependence here. This is the truth of God. And indeed, Paul rejoices, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. Do you get this? Do you know this joy? Do you understand this thanksgiving? Those who receive the Word of God with life-transforming power. Do you know what it means to hear a puny man risen from the dust speak and to experience the conviction in your soul that this is the very truth of God? There seem to be many who listen to sermons, who receive messages communicated to them of God's grace and of the Bible's revelation. And they always seem to think in terms of that's the preacher's opinion. They might respectfully listen to the message and take it in, but they always see it as this is what this individual thinks. Now certainly every faithful preacher shares personal opinions. And without any question, some of those personal opinions are not true. But the words the Apostle Paul preached were nonetheless the very words of God. He's not claiming infallibility here. He would see himself as a puny man risen from the dust. In fact, he spoke of himself as the chief of sinners. But that did not change the fact, says Paul, that we preach to you the very words of God. When preachers proclaim a message that is accurate with the written word of Scripture, they communicate faithfully what God has said. And when people respond to that truth, something happens. Verse 13 at the end. It is now at work in you who believe. This word that was received, this message received, is now at work in you. God's word has taken root within you, and this word goes to work and changes people. It's not philosophical musings, it's not a mere experience. It is the message and revelation of God, and it has life transforming power. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. For the Word, the preaching, the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, that Word is the power of God. 1 Peter 2.23 You have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. It's alive. It dwells within us. It changes us. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is like a spotlight that can bring 
our thoughts and motives to light. James 1 and verse 21, Receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. The Word of God is like seed. It is rooted in the heart, and it grows. And it's able, it has power to save souls. All Scripture, writes Paul in 2 Timothy, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. As Jesus said, prayed for us, sanctify them through the truth. Your Word is truth. Change them. Make them holy by Your Word, which is the truth. God's Word is alive. It changes people when they receive it as His Word. One of the primary evidences that the Word of God has been faithfully received, one of the evidences that it is at work in our lives, is that the faithful reception of God's Word leads to the faithful endurance of persecution. One of the clearest evidences that that Word has been genuinely received is we are willing to stand up against a hostile world to hold to the truth of God. There's this collision between what our world thinks and says in rebellion against God and the Word of God, the truth of God. Those who have genuinely received this Word hold to that truth against the onslaught that this world brings against it. And that was true of these believers Verse 14, you see the word for. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. This is evidence that they have, in fact, genuinely received the implanted, life-transforming Word of God. The evidence of it is they have become imitators of the churches that are in Judea. The first believers assembled in Jerusalem at the temple and churches began to fan out from there across Judea and beyond. And Paul commends the Thessalonian believers for patterning their lives after those first churches. It's interesting, isn't it? That's right where we are as a church today. We always speak of, the, of coming back to the early church, of restoring what was there, and seeking to pattern our life and our ministry after the early church. It's, not, it's going to look very different culturally, but we're seeking to prioritize and to order our church according to the New Testament pattern. This is going on right out of the gate. This book is an early book in the New Testament corpus, and it is a book yet in which we find Gentile believers imitating the early church in Jerusalem. In what sense? How did they imitate that early church, that first church in Jerusalem? How did they imitate it? Verse 14, in the middle of the verse for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Ironically, it was the Apostle himself who was behind much of the early suffering in Judea. But we remember the story. Peter and John, remember, thrown in prison. Other Apostles were imprisoned following that. We don't have all of their names. How many of them? Perhaps all of them thrown in prison. And then Stephen was stoned to death. And on that day, the church began to scatter as persecution ran many out of Jerusalem. 
It was downright dangerous to be a Christian in Jerusalem at this time. James was executed. Peter was jailed and would have probably been executed, but God intervened. There's a strong majority force that opposes the Gospel in Jerusalem, but those early believers stood the test. They held to the Word of God. Only those willing to endure suffering will hold to the Gospel under such pressure. They did it, and you're doing it. And it is evidence that you have received the genuine Word of God, that it's transforming you and holding you to that truth against opposition. Because usually when people suffer, they just come up with another plan. If we're doing something that leads to pain, we're doing something that is not approved, it's very natural to simply change our idea to do something else you didn't do that just like the early church you held true under opposition having mentioned the jews now paul addresses his own countrymen who had a lot to do with his being driven out of thessalonica there is opposition here that's the world that we're in you've received a word that is opposed And so, verse 15, speaking of the Jews in 14, he says in verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove out and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. Now, it might be obvious at this point, but there's many who read this as an anti Semitic statement that is being declared as hatred toward the Jewish people. How do we read it? Well, he says the Jews killed Jesus. Who brought God's life-giving message of truth? They killed the Messiah. That's a historical reality. It's a historical tragedy. The Jewish leaders crucified their own Messiah. This opposition to God's plan is evidenced Article number one, they killed Jesus. They killed the prophets who were sent to them with God's message. This is a pattern of our people. Over the generations, a prophet comes with the Word of God to announce His truth, and the Jews killed Him. They drove us out of Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17. We wanted to bring the message of salvation in Jesus and they drove us away. And they oppose all mankind. In what sense? Not, I don't think, in the sense the pagans emphasized in their writings, the ancient historian pagans simply could not understand the concept of Israel's holiness as a nation, of God's chosen people. So they widely criticized the Jews as hating everybody but themselves. Diodorus Siculus wrote that the Jews, quote, looked upon all men as their enemies and made their hatred of mankind into a tradition. So the pagans look at it. Is that what Paul's saying? They just hate everybody. And they make a tradition out of hating everybody but themselves. They're in love with themselves. They hate mankind. Is that what he means? That's not what Paul means. And we notice that here as he continues forward and explains, the Jews oppose all mankind, verse 16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. 
By standing in the way of the gospel, the Jews stood in the way of God's saving purposes. By hindering Paul and others from proclaiming God's words, the Jews were blocking the only source of saving grace. I think it says to us that nations, even to this day, not simply the Jews, but nations who resist the gospel are enemies of mankind and objects of God's wrath. It will not end well for them because of what God will do and how He will respond. Not because of how Christians will respond, for we continue to lay down our lives to proclaim the message. But those nations that are opposing and resisting the gospel are under the wrath of God because it's His truth and His purpose to save. I think that it's very important here to notice that Paul assumes that salvation comes through the proclamation of God's message. We have this message of truth. It is the power of God to save. We want to communicate it to the world, but there's those standing in the way and opposing it, and so they are hindering people from being saved. More and more Christians today are caving into the dictates of pluralism and multiculturalism in our day, and they're claiming that people are saved apart from hearing the Gospel. This is becoming common even among those who believe in salvation through the death and resurrection of Christ. What is known as this inclusivist position is that there are vast majorities of people who are saved through Jesus Christ. They just don't know it. Jesus has done the saving work. He's reaching out in grace to save them and they just don't realize it. I think Paul would be absolutely appalled by such a statement. That's why he's suffering for the Gospel in city after city after city because they must receive the message. He said in Romans 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how are they to call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? They can't. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to receive this communication without someone relaying it to them? They can't. So we see that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Faith comes through receiving the message. Obviously this is not taken in a universal sense or an absolute sense. We can be saved by reading. But salvation comes through the message communicated through the Word of God. So again, in this inclusivist position, it's popular to say that the vast majority of people around the world are saved without knowing it. Evangelism is simply going into all the world and telling them what they don't know. You're already saved. Christ has already saved you. What Paul is saying is this message must get through because it is only response to this message that leads to salvation. The Word of God must be received. It must be implanted. There must be a response to Jesus Christ crucified and risen. 
The Jews who hinder the gospel are hindering the nations from hearing the message by which they are saved. And so, verse 16 says, as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. This is in accordance with what has happened in the past, this resistance to God's salvation. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. They fill up the measure of their sins. The chosen nation's resistance to God's saving purposes was, to quote Lightfoot, drop after drop being poured into the cup of their guilt. There is this evidence in Scripture that there is a line. It's like a cup that continues to fill up with sin, but there's a place where the cup becomes full. God cannot remain just unless there is some place where it's over. This resistance to God has gone on from generation to generation to generation, not receiving this message of salvation. Indeed, now God's wrath has come upon them because of their opposition to His purposes. What does that mean? God's wrath has come upon them at last. Commentator Gordon Fee writes, this is one of the most problematic passages in the entire Pauline corpus, which I always say is never encouraging words to hear for the average pastor (laughs) trying to figure it out. I'm not going to try to unwind it. Uh, seven, in my research, seven distinct views of what this phrase means. It's, it's difficult. But I think we can back away from understanding it with any precision and sufficing, suffice it to say here that the Jews' resistance to God's saving purposes has incurred His wrath. His anger is there against anyone who is resisting the message of the Gospel. God desires to save He desires for this message to go into all the world as a message of hope. And when people stand in the way, His anger is piqued because they're resisting His purposes. That wrath has begun to affect the nation of Israel and it will find fulfillment in the future. Jewish people who respond to the Gospel, however, are delivered by this same Word. And that brings us back to this charge of anti-Semitism. Is Paul here hating the Jewish nation when he says they kill Jesus, they kill the prophets, they drive us out, they oppose all mankind? Those who make this charge, and there are those who make the charge who have used this passage to say it's okay to hate and oppose Jews. There are others who say Paul didn't write this couldn't have written this. This is out of sync with everything else that he says. There are others who just say, of course Paul didn't write it, and Paul didn't write most of what people think he wrote, and they just dismiss the whole authority of Scripture. I think they're all missing the point, but anyone who sees this as a statement of anti-Semitism simply doesn't understand Paul at all. Those who make this charge base their criticism on a fundamental error And that is to view all Jews as one. Paul never does that, nor does the Old Testament. There are two distinct groupings of Jews. There is the majority of Jewish people who resist the purposes of God, and there is a remnant as a subset of Jews who honor God. They're called a remnant for a reason. They're a minority position of 
faithful Jewish people. Paul is not talking about them here. He's one of them. And he longs for all Jews to join with him as part of those who have responded to Messiah. But the truth of the matter is, there are those who resist Christ and those who don't. It would be very similar to us in our setting, speaking about the sensuality and the materialism and the godlessness of the United States. Is that because I hate the United States? Somebody said, well, you just, you just hate your country. No, I don't hate my country. I love my country, and that's why I'm saying this. There is within our country people of faith who are seeking to follow Christ as Savior, seeking to walk in holiness and faithfulness to Him, and we long for all Americans to join us in that, but they don't. That's how Paul's speaking here. He's not speaking against the Jewish people as one lump. He's speaking against those who stand in resistance to the Gospel of Christ. And for those people, he's going from city to city to city, suffering to take the message of hope to them. He doesn't hate his people as he says in Romans chapter 10, he'd be willing to die for them, and that's what he says with his example in his life, that he's willing to die for them, that they might receive this message of forgiveness. Those who are accused of hating humanity because they stand in opposition to sin are many times those who actually love humanity. And within this culture, we stand against many sins, many places where people reject Christ, and we are then accused of hating people. It's not hatred. It's the truth of God. Paul deeply loved his people. And it is with grief of heart that he issues these bold accusations of their consistent position against the truth. He simply speaks the truth. The Jewish nation has largely rejected God's saving purposes in Christ. The Jewish authorities of Paul's day had been the source of untold trial for him in city after city and in this city of Thessalonica. And as such, they were continuing their long pattern of resisting the saving purposes of God. He's telling the truth with a broken heart. Much as we might today speak with a broken heart about the sins of America. But within that broken nation, within that resistant and rebellious nation, there was this man who called himself the chief of sinners and who embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ and now brings that message of salvation in Jesus as the Word of God to the lost. And I may speak to someone here this morning, you've never really taken up that position concerning God's Word, concerning the Bible, concerning those who speak with accuracy the Word of truth. Now, undoubtedly, you're not here with hostile intent to God's saving grace. You're not trying to shut the church down. You're not trying to hinder missionaries throughout the world. You probably wouldn't be here if that was your level of resistance. But if the truth were told, you've really not come to a place in your life's journey where you sense any real necessity to repent of your sin 
or to throw yourself at the mercy of God. You hear the Bible read. You understand its basic doctrines. But there's really never been that sense that this is the very words of God, the truth that transforms. Well, I say to you, this message that Paul preached is the Word of God. And it is the Word that you must embrace. You must receive it. It is the message of salvation in Christ. And that message is received by two kinds of people. Those who receive God's mercy and those who reject it. Those who receive it, it becomes the transforming power of God's Word in their life. Those who reject that truth, you need to know this. You are, in one sense, right now, the object of God's wrath. Simply by virtue of the fact that you have not seen His Word as His truth and as your salvation. Now that wrath will come in greater fullness. Right now His common grace is poured out upon people. But that wrath will come. Why? Why is God so angry? Because as sinners we break His law. We do things our way. Day after day after day, we choose to do what we want to do in violation of God's law, which was given to keep us away from false gods who will tear us down. The false gods of rejection of His name and of His saving grace. He has given us His law, His Word, that we would find in Him our joy and our strength and our purpose. So God is angry when we run from His saving grace. Worship our own idols and do things our own way. People who belong to God have become people of God's Word. They have been rescued from that self-centered, idolatrous, law-breaking life to obey and honor this Word which transforms the way they think and the way that they live and who they are. They are people who live and die in the hope that God's Word is true. That Word unleashes a dynamic process that rescues and changes. It leads first to conviction and repentance of sin. It leads to regeneration, giving new life through the message of the Gospel. It leads to transformation. We are sanctified by this truth as it is implanted in us, progressively delivering us from the power of sin. We are people of the Word of God. And that Word is proclaimed in this world. It is in written form. It is proclaimed in preaching and teaching. So I ask, is your life rooted in that Word of God? Is it rooted there? Have you received it as the Word of God? Is this truth an integral part of the way you think and act and behave and dream? Do you understand? Do you rejoice that the God who created the world by the power of His Word speaks today in His written Word and through the proclamation of the Word, saving people and forming His church through His Word. And fathers, as we give leadership to our families, as we think on our role particularly today, 
are we displaying our confidence that the Word of God is the Word of God? Are we bringing the Word of God to bear upon our family's decisions and actions and orientations? Is the Word of God read in our homes? Is it memorized? Is it studied? Is it honored? Is it sought out for its light? Or is it honestly a book on a shelf that we may pick up occasionally and might bring to church, but there's really no ultimate connection to our lives? This Word, this book, this proclamation through puny men is the Word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I pray that this life-transforming Word would be an integral part of our daily lives. I pray for anyone who knows not Christ as Savior that You would bring them to saving faith in Jesus today. That even this message from a puny man risen from the dust would be taken and received as the Word of God. That the death and resurrection of Christ and its life-transforming power would be made clear and embraced. Received. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, for those of us who know that Your Word is the truth, we thank You for this regenerating power. And we celebrate today desiring that You'd give us a thousand tongues to speak the truth of Your Word. That You would give us faithfulness to this message to communicate it in our language to a needy and dying world. Aid us to that end, I pray. In Christ's name, Amen.